0: Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles.
1: I'm going to take a moment and introduce our speaker, uh, uh, and he is someone who for many of you, maybe even most of you, he doesn't need introduction, and I, and I won't introduce him again, but I want to reintroduce Uh, To some of you, and introduce for the first time to a number of you as well, Christian Smith, uh, who is going to be speaking for us today and who I suspect you'll be hearing from a good bit over this coming season. Um, Christian, uh, first of all, is uh, me and Sharon's youngest child. And uh, I think it's important, though, for you to know, and many of you know this very well, that he is a son of this church He was born the year after Sharon and I began to lead this congregation, which at that time was a, you know, I think 54 people invited us to come be their pastor. And uh, so he literally has been born and dedicated and uh, K-ported and club sixed and redlined and whatever we called him during that era. And all of that uh, before he headed off to college and, and then came back and joined our staff. So uh, he's been a part of this church literally his whole life has been lived in the in this community and he's a product of this community. And, you know, if you if you detect a little bit of pride when I talk about him, which um, I think you're allowed to be proud of your kids, aren't you? Is that okay? Is that permitted? Um, Then, you know, it's something that I hope all of you feel, you know, not just when we see Christian, but we've got a lot of great uh, young people who've been produced uh, in no small part by the power of this community to shape someone uh, in really, really special ways. So uh, Christian in his, most of his uh, later childhood and uh, teenagehood was uh, his life was really centered around sports. Um, that was kind of his thing. Most of you know him as an academic, but that really wasn't how he was known when he was a teenager. He was an all state quarterback, quarterback for West Orange High School. He's an all conference basketball player. Um, he was uh, recruited by a number of schools to play college football, particularly the Ivies. A um, story I didn't tell in the first service. Uh, that I'll tell you, and it doesn't ever cost you anything extra to hear extra stories from me, is that uh, my son, our son Caleb, played, played football at Yale. And in his senior game, uh, the, the, his senior Harvard-Yale game, when, his, when, when Yale came running out on the field, Christian and I were standing on the Harvard sideline because Harvard, it was their recruiting day, and they were recruiting him pretty hard to play quarterback there. And uh, so he, he was, uh, uh, decided that he wanted to go to a Christian college, and so he went to Wheaton College, which is known mostly for its academics, Wheaton College in uh, a suburb of New York City. This is where Billy Graham went to college and lots of people who are very well-known in the Christian community. Uh, but what people don't know is they have a great D3 football team. And uh, they compete for the D3 National Championship pretty much every year. And so he went to play football and study, and he ended up getting injured his uh, freshman year and ended up discovering he actually liked studying more than playing football. And um, came back from Wheaton, uh, joined our staff team, interned some during those years when he was at Wheaton, uh, fell in love with one of our staff team members. Uh, Amanda. At that time, her name was Berrios. Her her name is now Smith. Um, Amanda uh, was a part of our team. Uh, I hired Amanda, actually personally hired Amanda, not knowing that she and Christian evidently had had a a thing going on. And uh, I had no idea I was hiring my future daughter-in-law, but uh, Amanda has played a number of really key roles here, from our student ministries director to um, worship leader to our online campus pastor from London. And uh, she's been on staff now almost 10 years, if you can believe that. And at some point in there, the two of them got married. Christian, in the meantime, uh, pursued his, uh, his uh, uh, Masters of Christian Apologetics from Biola University and then felt called to uh, take on a, a certain niche area of study that he f- feels like uh, he is called to make a significant impact in, in, the, in the church at large, which is uh, the merging of theology and the arts, the reclamation of the arts for the glory of God, which um, has really been lost to the Christian church, uh, in, at least in the magnitude that it had been known for many centuries. And so uh, the, num- the top uh, uh, thinker in the world on this is a guy named Ben Quash. who's a professor at the Great King's College in London. And uh, Ben Quash accepts six students or so every three years into his PhD program. And Christian got accepted in that program. And, um, and so he and Amanda have lived in London the last two years, hence the reintroduction, because though they were... Uh, supposed to be there for another year for him to finish his PhD, they allowed him to come back home uh, and to write his. He's got about a hundred thousand words of a thesis that none of you will ever want to read. Actually, uh, that. <laughs> Sorry, his mother will try, but uh, she won't make it far. Anyway. Uh, Uh, He's got about 100,000 words of a thesis to write over the next year, which is his primary focus, but he continues to be on our staff part-time, and you'll be hearing from him in a a number of capacities. You'll be hearing from Amanda in a number of capacities, who was on our team full-time. And uh, so I just thought, for those of you who haven't met Christian and don't know the story, that's kind of the story. I won't ever need to introduce him again, probably, but um, uh, that's that. I hope you give a great big welcome to Christian Smith.
0: Thanks, Dad, for the introduction. It's kind of weird being introduced at a place where you've been on the stage about a thousand times already, and then listening to your dad tell your life story out with just minor embellishments, as I'm sure you could you could imagine. Uh, it's definitely surreal to be back and to be back in this position as well. Uh, but it's so great to to that we've been engaged with the online campus uh, fully while we were in London, uh, to be back physically at the West Orange Campus. There's something about um, the physicality of being around people and seeing people's faces and being able to hug people and shake hands. So it's been wonderful kind of reintegrating into this world, into this family and community. You guys are so welcoming. and uh, and loving as always. So give yourself a big round of applause, if you will, for being awesome. All right. So today I'm going to be talking about worship, continuing a series that Pastor Ryan launched last week, our our series called Offering Worship. And uh, I think sometimes that worship can be an interesting topic to talk about because I think a lot of us Uh, maybe have awkward experiences with worship at times, or maybe at least interesting experiences or thoughts about worship. Um, If you've been a Christian for too long, then you, maybe not too long in terms of it should have been less time, but for a long time, if you've been a Christian, you've probably had weird worship experiences here or there. You know, someone screaming at the top of their lungs in the back of a room, perpetually maybe throughout a service. Anyone ever hear that? There's a church I went to in London where someone would basically, every single service would be yelling the entire time. Um, or maybe you're new to the Christian faith and you walk into a room and you have what people call like praise and worship time where we're singing like we just were. People like raising their hands, maybe doing weird things, and it just feels like a weird experience. Well... Um, I've experienced those things throughout my life, but when we had just moved to London, and some of you have heard this story before, so bear with me when we had just moved to London, we were fully in- engaged in the online campus, but we were also just like visiting some of the local churches and uh when we first got there, we were actually ended up going to an American church plant, coincidentally enough um and it felt very much like an American church plant. Um, not much was different from what I'd experienced in the States. And then I had a PhD friend who invited me to go to her church, and the church has been there like forever. You know, it's, I don't know, the building was from like 16th century or something crazy like that. And it's really beautiful and grand, and, you know, you walk in, and I'm sure many of you have experienced this in your travels. You walk in, and there's like all the, you know, like the tombs of people and the floor, and you're like trying to like, hopscotch, you know, over them. Because you don't want to be walking on these people's bodies, Um, and we're in the service for the first time, and they're singing kind of like more of a traditional church, and they're singing hymns, but it's like I can't sing along with everyone, and I don't really know why, and I keep trying to change my cadence with singing with them. And like tone, whatever, all this sort of stuff, and it's like a while, and it's just like not catching on. I feel like I'm not vibing with the worship experience. And Amanda keeps kind of like looking up at me. Well, Amanda looks up at me like this. She's like looking up at me, and I'm like, and then she like taps me, and she goes, "Are you singing in an English accent right now?" How great Thou art! How great, you know kind of thing. I couldn't mesh with the worship experience because everyone was singing in an accent to a person. It actually is surprisingly, it really changes the experience. You have to sing in an accent, otherwise you stand out, whatever. That was one of my weird worship experiences when we had first moved there, and I'm sure that some of you have have yours as well. One of the things that typically happens in conversations about worship is that our minds immediately move to think about times of, quote-unquote, praise and worship. That's what, you know, in in our tradition and in many traditions, that's what we call times where we sing within a service, or that's a, a category of music is called praise and worship music. So when we think about worship, be immediately thinking about singing and songs or that period of time on a Sunday morning or maybe throughout the week you you know listen to praise and worship music in your car and spend some time in worship and that's what worship means to us but i think that the first thing we need to do when having a conversation about worship is expand it so that it is much bigger than just a time in which we spend singing praise and worship and that in fact we want to live a lifestyle of worship not just spend moments in our lives worshiping. So as, uh, as J. Richard Middleton says upon these lines, he's a, a, a biblical scholar, he says, what we need is a redefinition of worship. First of all, we should not reduce human worship of God to verbal, emotionally charged expressions of praise, which is what we usually mean by the term. Rather, our worship consists in all that we do. This is well illustrated in Romans 12, which was our text from last week and kind of a foundation of the series, where Paul describes full-orbed bodily obedience, which he says is our true worship. So moving away from just verbal, emotionally charged expressions of praise and move uh, worship into this category of full-orbed bodily obedience. We see in Romans 12, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. See, worship is inclusive of times of singing, but it is also much, much more. It is not less than singing, but it is more than just singing or providing praise to God. To worship, I offer, is to fully offer oneself to some thing. In being an offering, and offering our whole selves to said thing, we are showing our adoration and our praise of that thing. So when we give ourselves to something, our whole selves, we are a part of ourselves, we are offering worship to that thing. Now, just because we say that we praise something or love something or adore something, does not mean that we actually do praise or love or worship that thing. You know, it's it's common to to hear people you know talk about how they adore their spouse, right? Um, and maybe you've you hung out with people before, or it doesn't even have to be a spouse, girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever. And they could be like, uh, you know, like, oh, I love my spouse so much, whatever, whatever. But I'm sure you've experienced times where you've been with someone who says they love their spouse, but when you see them with their spouse, it doesn't look like they love them very much. Well, lots of bickering, lots of fighting, you know, not much of loving that's going on. Uh, see, when you actually, you, how you can tell if someone actually adores someone is by how they actually live their life. So if you see two people together and they're sacrificing for each other, if you see me and I say I love Amanda, but then you see me actually loving Amanda, you see me sacrificing for her, you see me building her up, you see me living that out with my actual life, and not just with my, my vocal cords proclaiming love, but with my actual life, then you see that I actually adore her. So worship, I offer, is lived adoration. It's when you offer your life to another. Worship is not saying something. It's not less than saying something. Saying something is important. But it is a lived adoration. Now, there's an example of where, of where this isn't happening, the lived adoration part, the separation between what someone's saying and what some, someone is doing. And we see this uh, in, in uh, the life of the, the, the Jewish people in Isaiah 29, um, where they're praising God, but they're not living out their praise. The Lord said, these people draw near with their mouths. And honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is a human commandment learned by rote. Here we see that you can proclaim with your lips that you worship God, but not actually live that way. The, the, the term that a way that we could put this is lip service, giving lip service to something. The term lip service actually developed, I think it was like the 16th or 17th century with a priest or a monk or someone like that. My details aren't great on this. Don't quote me. I'm not a scholar of the, of the phrase lip service. Um, but it developed in 16th or 17th century with someone who, who was studying evil spirits and the operation of evil spirits, actually. And they were talking about how evil spirits can give lip service to God without actually living a life of praise and worship of God. So, too, I think that we can sometimes give lip service to God, where on a Sunday morning, let's say, we can come in and we can sing our songs, or maybe even daily in our prayer times, we can sit down in the morning and, and we can say our prayers but we're giving lip service because, in the rest of our life, you don't see that your life is marked by an adoration of God. So, going back to to, to our relational analogy, um, sometimes, uh, so, so sometimes I think that, like, like, as we're seeing here, we can give the lip service, but our hearts, right, are are distant from our lips, if you will. Our hearts aren't actually in what we're doing, and sometimes. Uh, we can let's say if you if you think about uh, when two people are are getting married, um, they're standing there at the altar and they're saying all the nice stuff, you know, and it's mushy, and they're saying, I love you, and they're reading their vows, and they're making all these commitments to one another, and it's special, and you have this peak of emotional expression, and then, you know, your one goes by, and your two goes by, and your go, your three goes by, and you guys begin your, you know, relationship routine, and, you know, someone's, you know, you're waking up at 8 o'clock in the morning, and then, you know, you're looking over at your spouse who's still asleep, mouth open, slight amounts of drool. This isn't my marriage. This is not... Manda is a beautiful, you know, like not closed mouth, very key. Um, and, you know, then you wake up, and then you make your coffee, and then you go to work, whatever, and then you come home, and then you eat dinner, and then you watch like seven hours of Netflix, and then you go to sleep. We don't do that either. It's not us. But, and then you wake up the next morning, and then their mouth's still open, and they're drooling on the other side of the mouth, a little bit different, different day. And then, you know, and then you go and then, and then the weekend comes and then you spend time doing tour on the weekends and then you, and you become to get this routine that ends up happening and you end up perhaps going through the motions in a relationship. And so, so too, I believe that this can happen in our relationship with God where there, there, we can come to times where we are going through the motions in our faith. And I feel like this is emphasized with the scripture where it says, their worship of me is a human commandment learned by rote. So something that is rote is habitual and mechanical. So every morning, I make my coffee by rote. I have the thing, and I have this little coffee scale. I'm weird about it. I get real weird. Coffee scale of how many grams of coffee and all this kind of stuff. What's the temperature of my? But it's just routine, mechanical, by rote. Or if you learn something by rote, perhaps, then it's just mechanical memorization, rather than necessarily actually understanding it. I was teaching a freshman philosophy class once, and you can you know, tell the students all the information, and then you can ask a question to students, and they've memorized the textbook, and they can answer a basic informational question that you give them, but then when you apl- when you ask them to maybe apply the information that they learned and they're unable to do so, it's because they learned by rote. It was mechanical memorization. If you will, their hearts were not close to the information. They weren't you know, consuming it and able to apply it and it filling them up so that they could do something with it. They honored it with their lips, but not with their hearts. They were going through the motions. Now, are we going through the motions in our faith? I'm not assuming you are, but it's something to ask ourselves and maybe every once in a while to come back and check with ourselves. Are we going through the motions in our faith? Now, the, 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 the scary part, I believe, about going through the motions in our faith is that um, when we start to go through the motions, our hearts aren't into it. Our hearts are far from God when we're going through the motions. Our lips might give lip service, but our hearts are not into it. And then we must ask ourselves where our hearts are. See, when we actively worship God, we consciously posture our lives in adoration with how we live our lives. We, When we're parenting or we're befriending people or we're working or we're spending our free time, we're doing all of that still in a posture of adoration, of trying to do things in a way that is honoring of this situation being offered to God, to parent in a way that you feel comfortable that it is a holy and pleasing true offering of worship to God. But when we aren't actively worshiping God, when we start going through the motions of our relationship with God, then we likely begin to worship something else. Our hearts get close to something else. See, we are worshiping beings. We are always offering ourselves to something, whether consciously or unconsciously. And the concern is that when we're going through the motions and our hearts are far from God, then our hearts are close to something else. And we have to ask ourselves what our hearts might be close to if they aren't close to God. Again, back to the relationship stuff. You want your heart to be close to your spouse, so it's not close to someone else, right? Obviously, naturally, and but then also maybe you're not you're not you know philandering or whatever, you know, but you're not giving your heart to your spouse. Who are you probably giving your heart to? Maybe yourself. Sometimes we might might not be actively seeking things that are opposed to the ways of God, but we're apathetic towards God. And I think apathy is often an indication of us kind of worshiping ourselves, of staying... uh, uh, with, within ourselves, inside of ourselves, in removing ourselves from the things of the world. But our hearts are always close to something. And if it's not to God, it's something out there. Or maybe we're worshiping ourselves in the sense of offering just our time to ourselves. So when our hearts are far from God, our hearts are close to something else. Now, uh, we, we, we see this in our foundational text, again, going back to Romans 12 where it says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, as we have read, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And then it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Now, I think that this makes sense for Paul to write, because if you're not offering yourself to God, your heart to God, well, the world has a pattern that it wants you to follow. The world is prepared to take your heart, if you will. The word here uh, for, for pattern is Greek, "schematizo," which is where we get our word schema from in English, or it can mean to fashion yourself after something. So the evil powers of the world want you to pattern yourself after, to fashion your life after anything other than God. Another translation could say, don't fashion yourself after this age. It's what Paul's warring against. See, the world is trying to grab your heart, your attention, your worship. It's fine if your lips keep praising God because the world knows that the battle for your heart is what matters, not your lips. And if it can subliminally get you to pattern your life off of the current fashionable age, then it knows that you are now offering yourself to the things of the world. You are worshiping the fashion of the age. You offer yourself to the ways of the world. And therefore, you no longer worship God, even though we may think that we are because we proclaim with our lips. See, when we start to go through the motions of our faith, then the evil world knows it can capture your heart and start to pattern it towards things that are not of God. I um, think about what happens here with, I don't have this on the screen behind us, but um, when Jesus is in the wilderness and he's fasting, uh, so it's 40 days in the wilderness and he's fasting, incredibly depleted um, in, in many ways, emotionally and physically, and then Satan comes to tempt him, with the things that he might be desiring in this moment. Jesus has kind of abdicated his position or the power that he has as a member of the Trinity and the power that God, he's not counting equalness with the father. And, and he's, he's, he's hungry. He's given up food for 40 days and the devil comes to him. And in the scripture reads, again, the devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I think that this, obviously a very specific moment here in dealing with Jesus, but I think that this is what we face in our lives now where the world is constantly attempting in a really shockingly obvious way today is constantly trying to grab our attention and to show us the things of the world that we might get some satisfaction from, and it's trying to distance our hearts from God. Um, what's the term? I forgot it. first service, too. Uh, attention economy. Someone said that. Someone was sitting in first service, I think. Ooh, we have a cheater looking at the notes. No. Um, an attention economy... Uh, It's a common way in which people think about marketing or really just how to make money. So you have all these things today that we all engage in all the time that are free, right? But if the product is free, then guess who's the product? You, me, right? And people are trying to grab just our attention because in some way they begin to sell us products or sell us desires, and trick us to think that our hearts are going to be content in consuming these things that will fill up part of our lives, when in reality what's just happening is that there's this entire flood of patterning in the world, the fashion of the age, the schema of the world, that when we begin to just dip our foot into it, or let our heart, you know, get caught up in the waves and where the wind's blowing, and then we start to begin to think that the most important thing in our life is whatever that thing is that's captured our attention. Maybe that's our work or our finances or our free time being ours or that's sexual activity that's not according to scripture or maybe that's whatever it might be. We start to get our thought life gets patterned around these things and then all of a sudden our heart that we let linger away from God for a minute gets caught up in the flood and the flow of culture and society and what's happening. And all of a sudden, our heart is way further from God than we originally expected. Because Satan is sitting there at all times, just to be completely frank, and he's trying to tell us, hey, you see these things? The world can be yours. You can have the desires of your heart. But just like Jesus, we are to Sit there and remember that ultimately God is the one who will satisfy the desires of our heart if we will give our heart to Him. Okay, so how can we cultivate a life of worship? And maybe, again, this might be something that you're dealing with now, and this is helpful. This might be something to slot, you know, index into your life of faith to to check in on when we might be going through the motions in our life of worship. How can we? cultivate a life of worship when we might be struggling. Well, we're going to go back to Isaiah 29 earlier that we read and see how God says that he's going to cultivate worship amongst peoples whose hearts are far from him. The Lord said, Because these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their worship of me is a human commandment learned by rote. So because of this, so I will again do amazing things with this people, shocking and amazing. Amazing. The wisdom of their wise shall perish and the discernment of the discerning shall be hidden. I think this is a fascinating response from God to people's hearts being far from them is he says, essentially, he promises that he's going to humble those who give him lip service by doing shocking and awe-inspiring things by his power. He's basically going like the people who have forgotten who I am how great I am, let me give them a show. So when we think we have God bottled up in our mind or maybe bottled up even with our time, uh, you know, 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. on a Sunday morning right before I go grocery shopping, that's when I have my God time maybe or I'm not saying you all are doing that but we might bottle up God in our mind. We might forget how great he are, how much he demands by his very nature, not because he's forcing us, but by his very nature, demands to be worshipped. We might forget that when our heart gets far from him, and then what we need is a is a shock to the system to remember how great God is and how much He is worthy and deserving of our praise, of our worship, of us offering our life to Him. We have to remember how great God is. A lot of people will—I don't know about a lot of people—for the very few who are interested in my PhD. <laughs> And the five that will read it, evidently. Thanks, Dad. Guess you won't be one of them. Um, people will ask me, you know, like, oh, how much do you feel like you've learned reading, you know, eight hours of books a day, basically? And in a way, I'll say it almost feels like I know less. Because when It's like when you when you begin to study the things of God, which is what I'm studying the- in theology, and you, you get more of a glimpse at God and who he is, if you can't even say that, it's like you begin to learn less about him because he becomes even more, at least for me, shocking and awe-inspiring, that it's like I can grasp him even less and less, but in a beautiful way. It's like... You have the tidy categories and ways that you think of God, and again, kind of bottled up, and then you start to study God more, and you see how he breaks kind of all the human categories and the analogical ways that we speak about him and all this sort of stuff, and we we'll talk more deeply about that at some point, but it's like the more I think about God, the more I'm like, oh, but he's even more than that, but he's even more than that, but he's even more than that, and... um there's a way of putting this where it's like the greater the island of knowledge, uh, the greater the shoreline of mystery or something like that when I forget. It's like when you learn more, the island gets bigger, but there's the more shore that you can look out from and see that there's so much more ocean almost. You know what I mean? And so I I think kind of, you know, fitting all this into how I'm reading the scripture at least right now is that We need to get a shock to our system sometimes. We need to be humbled from thinking that we can bottle up God or that we can offer lip service or that we can slot him in or index him into a part of our life. And we need to remember that God is so shockingly, incomprehensibly wonderful somehow has revealed himself to us in the scriptures and in the person of Jesus and through his revelation in our lives and the Holy Spirit and the miracles that he does in our lives, that we just get a sliver of a glimpse into what and who he is. We have to cultivate these moments of humility to remind us of how worthy and demanding he is of praise by his very own nature. Something that, a practical way that I do this, and I'll run through this quickly, or try to, um, is... A lot of times when I start my my prayer routine in my in in, in the morning, you know, like in, in prayer, I can oftentimes be very selfish. Like it becomes about me, me doing my thing, and what am i am asking God for? Which is a very important part of our prayer lives. We should do that. But sometimes I can get sick of myself asking for things. I'm like, there has to be more here going on. And I'll start my prayer time by sitting down in my chair and I practice imaginative prayer. Well, I where where I will visualize myself. I'll like visualize myself outside of my chair. It's almost like an angle, like this. And then a picture of a drone just slowly floating out, like a drone shot on camera, like going out to space. To where you have, I I see myself, and then I see, as it slowly kind of moves outside of the house and the yard and the neighborhood and the country and then the and'm just picturing the earth as it's getting smaller and smaller as a little part of the galaxy and trying to almost force my mind to see as large as possible because it makes me feel very humbled because it reminds me how little of a speck I am of creation and sometimes we need that a lot of people in society it's like you know, you need to feel really great about yourself all the time. Sometimes you need to be like, uh, I kind of stink. You could say a lot of words there, but I'll stick with stink. And sometimes, uh, you know, and I am just a little part of the whole thing, the whole thing that's going on. I'm not the center of the story, yet I'm a beloved little speck. And Jesus died for the speck, but that speaks more to how great God is. It allows me to feel humble, but loved at the same time. And simultaneously, it reminds me of the grandeur of God at having created this whole thing. And I think about, this is just practically what I do. Um, I think about Moses in the burning bush, and I think about God igniting this little piece of creation to reveal himself with this bush. And I think about how all of creation could just be ignited with fire of God's presence. It's not consuming creation, but it's manifesting his presence. And I think about creation as a temple that God is presencing within. And I think about the, the, um, the, the pre the high priesthood that would enter into the Holy of Holies where God's presence was and how they would enter with trepidation for fear of dying because God's presence was so great in that space. And that that's what this creation is, is a place in which God manifests his presence and how, much fearful, but good fearful, all I should have within this world that we live in in trepidation of realizing I am in the presence of God. And God is so shocking and awe-inspiring. And for me to be thinking about anything other than God, don't take that in the strict sense. I think you know what I mean. For me not to be posturing my life as much as I can always towards him, is to be missing something fundamental to the way that this whole thing works. Does that make sense? Just tracking with me. All right. Let me close out with this. So our, um, our apartment or our flat in London, <laughs> a nice way to say it, our flat. In London, it was over a sports bar, which we were not aware when we signed our lease. And uh, it was literally like like right over. like we were floor one of the apartment building and the sports bar was floor zero. And it was actually a very large sports bar. And we had to negotiate quite a bit with the GM when we found this out, when you know we're standing you know in our flat, and it can get pretty loud and we're asking him to have to close certain doors so that we weren't constantly bombarded with the oftentimes raucous atmosphere. And some days there would be lines of like hundreds of people deep. We have a little video from my cell phone I took one morning. You can turn it up a little bit, Sam. All the time. Just cheering, yelling, just singing. They do the whole thing. Their voices sound like that all the time. I don't know what it is, but that tone, I'm sure you guys have seen in like TV shows and stuff. and so that, that, that video was literally taken at 10 a.m. And they'd been outside since 9 a.m., multiple beers in hand, children in tow. <laughs> the bar didn't open up until 10, but they were going to get into that bar and they were going to have a good time and they were going to celebrate and enjoy that game. And uh, whenever there was uh, you know, a big game, and it's like 5 p.m. or 11 a.m. or whatever, and we're getting really bored of the yelling that's going on downstairs, then we had like a little Juliet balcony. You know, It didn't go out, but there was just like, a little gate over it. And we'd like, close the door, and we would close the windows in our flat to try and get as much you know, space as we could. But then you'd have all the yelling happening downstairs. This is, I was actually a participant in this, so that's my bad. <laughs> I don't even remember what game this was—World Cup or something. Right. This is even a pretty, a pretty tame moment. But everyone, you know, whenever anyone would score, it would be absolute mayhem downstairs. Luckily, there's not much scoring in the sport, in soccer or football. So it was a great pleasure. Uh, it would be like two times in an hour, they'd be yelling. But even if you close the windows and the door start shaking the floor and the walls because people were celebrating and chanting and cheering. And as I was preparing this week, this story came to mind and I connected in my mind with this passage from uh, from the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation has a lot of complicated and very interesting imagery and metaphors and analogies and, and whatnot all throughout. And, and in, in some respects, it's concerned about with the things that are going to happen in the future that is revealed to John. But in this passage that we're going to read, it's something that is is, uh, uh, revealed to John about what's going on right now in heaven. So this passage we're going to read isn't about the future, it's about what's happening right now in heaven. And I'll I'll kind of stop as we're reading it to describe some of this uh, really interesting imagery. So John says, There before me, was a door standing open in heaven. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So John's standing there, and a door to heaven is opened, and in the Spirit, which uh, those two, two things are used together, being in the Spirit and being open to seeing what's going on in the heavenly realms. Before him he sees a throne Someone sitting on it and he's about to see, he's about to have the throne of God revealed to him. And the one who sat there had the appearance, uh, appearance of Jasper and Ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. These images express and represent, uh, or they represent rather the inexpressible glory of God. Jasper and Ruby are used elsewhere in this sort of way, are associated with the presence of God Represents the awe of God. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. These 24 elders represent the community of believers, past and present, who are surrounding him. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. This connotes the purity and holiness of the faithful followers of God. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder— In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Again, you have this awe, the lightning, the peals and rumbling of thunder. And then you have the seven spirits, which likely represent angelic beings. And also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. This imagery is often paired with when God especially presencing in a place, you have the sea and the sea of glass and crystal. In In the center around the throne were four living creatures, And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. I know this is really kind of crazy imagery, but stick with me. These animals represent the whole created order, all created beings, including humans. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around even under its wings, the six wings often uh, reference uh, uh, a reference to heavenly beings or creatures, and the eyes show that they are seeing in all directions, in keeping watch continuously, and guarding the throne of God and God's glory day and night they never stop saying holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and is and is to come whenever the living creatures give glory honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever they lay down their they lay their crowns before the throne and say you are worthy our lord and god to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. So what's, how, what do we make of this? So John has this moment in the spirit. He gets a glimpse into heaven. But as I said, not heaven as something that exists in the future. And not heaven as we often mean it, which is some place that's far off but heaven as the unseen spiritual realm that is currently existing here and around us. So as uh, Tom Wright says, heaven and earth are the interlocking spheres of God's single creation. There is a creation, and there is the heaven unseen realm and the seen realm. And when John is in the spirit, he is suddenly open to and aware of the heavenly dimension of what we call ordinary life. John is getting a glimpse into what is happening right now in the unseen part of creation that is all around us. If we were to get a glimpse to, to, to Peel back, to receive the eyes of the Spirit in this way, to be standing in the throne room of God, we too, like John, would see this incredible, unimaginable, inexpressibly beautiful, all inspiring image of God in whatever way we say we can see. But as John is expressing it, it's overwhelming jasper and ruby and peals of thunder, rumbling and lightning, a sea of crystal that's surrounding him. And when the creatures look upon God, they can do nothing but worship him and praise him. Not because God is saying, you must worship me, you must praise me, because they can do nothing but praise and worship him. Because how can you not? And when we going astray from god and going through the motions or we begin to close the juliet balcony door close the windows to wanting to focus on god because our hearts don't want to have to you know go after god we want to do our own thing and close ourselves off and we want to create our own space and become insular because we don't want to hear the noise of a creation all around us that is praising god Sometimes we want to shut it out. We don't want to hear it. But even when we do, the floors begin to shake and the walls begin to shake with creation that is praising and adoring its creator. All of creation is praising. And if you don't praise and if I don't praise, the stones will cry out and the trees will clap in praise of God. (laughs) Creation is praising and I encourage you... I encourage all of you to join in that praise, to join in that worship, not just one moment or two, but with your whole life, to say, God, you're, I don't even need to rationalize it. Look at who you are. What can I do but give my life to you? What can I do but fall on my knees and praise and worship you? So I hope we're encouraged. Let's not go through the motions. Let's be shocked and awed by God. Remember who he is. For all of us, let's just remember who he is so that we can be inspired more and more to not just give lip service to God, to give lip service to God, to to praise him with our lips, but to praise him with our hearts and our minds and our whole body be an offering to him. If you would, please stand with me.